Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here. Good to see everybody on line. Um, This morning we're going to be continuing, well actually concluding our teaching series that we have been in for several weeks called The Secret Battle of Ideas About God. And during this series we've been seeking to answer, we've said this almost every time we've been up here, some of life's biggest questions. Questions like, am I loved? Why do I hurt? Does my life have meaning? Last week, Pastor Terry answered the question, why can't we get along? And today, I plan to close out this teaching series with answering the question, is there hope for the future? But before I get into that question and answer that question, I want to answer or ask another question. And that is, why in the world have we been in this series for so long in the first place? Why did we take six weeks to teach on false world worldviews such as postmodernism, Marxism, secularism, new spirituality, and today we're going to be looking at Islam. Why have we taken so much time and to spend on these false worldviews? And the reason we've done that are, are a couple of reasons. Number one, Ephesians 4 tells pastors that we are to equip the saints for ministry. Now, we are a church that teaches that all of us, if you are in Christ, if you are his disciple, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are a minister of the gospel. And wherever God has you placed in this world, just because you're not full-time preaching every week, you are to be a missionary wherever God has placed you. So we are to equip the saints for ministry. And in 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock, to feed the flock, to care for the flock. And so that's what we've been doing over the past few weeks. Because, you know, sheep like to eat, don't we? We like to eat, but everything that we eat is not always good. And so as under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, we are called to, as pastors, we are called to protect the flock, not only by preaching the truth. And, you know, that's one of the things that we want to be known for. We want to be known for teaching the truth and, and walking in the truth as disciples. But not just to teach the truth, but we're also called to expose falsehoods to expose false ideologies that appear to be true, because if we don't, we may end up eating them, not knowing it, and get sick or or drift away from the faith. So that's why we've been having this series. And, you know, one of the questions that I've heard over, over my lifetime, and also a question that I've asked at times, is this question, where was the church? Where was the church? Have you ever heard that question asked? Where was the church back when slavery was happening in America? Or where was the church in Germany when Hitler was rising to power? Why wasn't the church speaking up? And so instead of, you know, us just saying, you know, something's wrong with this world, uh, something needs to be done about it, we have decided as a church to address some of the most prevalent 
and destructive ide ideologies that we've been calling idea viruses that are in our society. And then, not just showing what's wrong, but we've been showing what, what to do about it. And it always goes back to the gospel. It always goes back to Jesus, that he is the answer to all these questions. Now, getting back to today's topic, is there hope for the future? You know, hope is, is an interesting word, isn't it? Because it can have two meanings when you think about it. Hope can be an expression of uncertainty. For example, you can say, I hope that it snows six inches. Or I hope that um, I don't get sick. Or I hope I get that job. You know what you're saying when you speak in uh, that type of hope? Basically what you're saying is, I don't know what the future is going to be. But I hope that the outcome is going to be favorable. That's one type of hope. And then there is another type of hope that is expressed in the Bible. It's, called, it's an expression of certainty. Now, this hope says, I do know, maybe not everything, but I know enough about the future that I can have certainty, that I can have hope. And this is the type of hope that produces peace and it produces rest in us. It produces joy. It's, it's the power over anxiety and fear. And my question for us this morning is this. Does that type of hope exist? Do you walk in that type of hope? And when you think about the future, are you walking in that kind of hope? Does it, is your, do you, are you filled with peace? Are you filled with joy? Are you resting because when you think about this world, there are so many variab variables in this world, aren't there? For example, when you go into work tomorrow, you could be told, I don't need you anymore. Or when you go to the doctor, you can get an unfavorable diagnosis. Or, you know, just getting up every morning. You know, um, how are you going to feel this morning? Like, I can feel really good one day, and then the very next day, be down in the dumps. And, and just the whole thing about getting old in life, right? It's just, is there hope for living in this world? And especially when our leader, our, our king, he, he gave us a promise. He said, in this life, you're always going to have what? Trials. You're always going to have trouble. You're always going to have tribulation. And so, this morning, I want to ask that question, is there hope for the future? Not, but not just in this life, but I want us to go past this life into the next life. Because there's, there's two things that are certain for everybody that's here this morning. Number one, we all came into this world, okay? Secondly, we're all going to leave it. We're all going to die. And so the question I, I want to get at, is there real hope, certain hope, even in light of, of death. And as I've been thinking about death and about the five worldviews that we've been going over, it occurred to me that there's three of them that are atheistic. Postmodernism, Marxism, and secularism. They all say that uh, there's no such thing as a spiritual or that God does not exist. And I, this is what was kind of, as I was thinking about it, it was, it was interesting when I was thinking about hope. What do they hope? What is their hope in? Their hope is in that there is no God. 
I mean, that else is like, wow, they're hoping that God doesn't exist. Because if he does, and he does, but I'm going to keep you, if he does, that at the end, they, like uh, Ricky Ricardo said, they got some explaining to do, Lucy, right? If God exists, he does exist. It's like, it's like someone that's um, living with a credit card, swiping it, going about, just hoping that at the end of the day, that at the end of the cycle, somehow they're not going to have to pay their debt. That's what it's like. But we all know that that's not how life works. Somebody at the end of, of time, somebody's got to pay the debt that we owe. So that's, that's, uh, that's atheistic view. New spirituality's hope is in embracing God consciousness. They say that when we attain to that higher level of consciousness, that the world will become and change as it, as it should be. That's where their hope is. Losing our sense of self and becoming one with the universe is what their hope is in. Which leads us to monotheistic faiths. The faiths that believe that there is only one God. And there's three major monotheistic faiths. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, I think most of us know that Judaism is very similar to Christianity, except they reject the New Testament. They reject Jesus. They reject that he was the Son of God. They reject that he was the Messiah. So we're not going to go into that this morning, but we're going to look at Islam this morning, which is the third um, monotheistic faith. Now, you may be asking, why are we going into Islam? And there's a couple of reasons that I want to look at Islam this morning. Number one, did you know that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world? 1.8 billion people in the world would say that they follow the Islamic faith. That is almost a quarter of the, wor- of, of the earth's population. That is a lot of souls who are being led astray by this, by this teaching. Secondly, there are many, even those who would profess to be Christians, that, that might think that the God of Islam is the same God as the God of, of the Bible, of Christianity. And what I want to make sure is, after today, that you will walk out of here and see that they are not, that, the, that Allah, the God of Islam, is not Yahweh the God of the Bible. So I think that because Islam is, is such a pr- prominent worldview in, in our lives that we need to know more about it so that we can make sure that we're not going that direction and that we can help those who are. So I believe it's a worthwhile subject to be talking about. Now, the founder of, of Islam, his name was Muhammad. He's also known as the prophet of Allah. He was born 570 years uh, AD. He was born after Jesus was born. That's important to understand that Islam came after Christianity. And at the age of 40, he claims that when he was praying in a cave that he saw an angel that began to give him revelations. And at first, he didn't know whether those revelations were from God or if they were from demons. And as tradition teaches, his wife encouraged him to just accept them to be from God, and so he did. And these revelations are recorded in the Islamic Bible, which is known as the Quran. Now, when it comes to God, they refer to their God as Allah, which is actually the standard Arabic word for God, but they use it as a title. 
And they would teach, just like we would teach, that he is the creator of all things. But listen to this. When, when they say that he is the creator, creator of all things, they, they would say that he created good and that he created evil. So that they, would, they say that their God is the God, the author of good and evil. Unlike us, they say that their God is divorced from creation, that he is an impersonal God. And Muhammad taught that we are not created in the image of God. Now, that's something that we teach almost every week, that God, why we have value is, one of the reasons we have value is because we were created in the image of God. Muhammad said we're not. He said we're not sons, and that God doesn't have sons and daughters. And rather, the, the Quran says that we are slaves and can only know God through obedience to the law. Another thing that's interesting about uh, their God is that they do not refer to him as father. That's one of the things Jesus taught us to do, isn't it? When in the Lord's Prayer, he said, when you pray, say, our father, which art in heaven. To, to the Muslim, this is blasphemous because in their minds, is, it is the same thing as saying that Allah had relations with your mother to produce you. So what I want us to get out of, out of this section with Allah is that the God of Islam is impersonal and he's unknowable and you're not allowed to call him father. So that's clearly not the God that we see in our scriptures. Now, when it comes to salvation, Islam teaches that everyone, you, me, everyone in the world was born a Muslim. And that means that you were born in submission to God, that you were born sinless. And it's only after you begin to grow that we, be, that we begin to drift away from Allah and follow worship, worship false gods or even to, de- to deny God. And salvation comes, the only way that salvation comes is for when, it's when you, uh, the person who is rebelling against God, repents and returns by practicing Islam. So you must practice Islam in order to find salvation. And the Muslims would say that they don't need a savior. They will come right out and say, uh, we don't need Jesus to die for our sins because we can make up for our own. So, so salvation for the Muslim is works-based salvation. And, and just like us, they say that at the end of time, that we all must stand before God and give an account. But they say, here's where, where we're different. They say that, that there are going to be scales that come out, and the scales will be weighed, and your good works must outweigh your bad works. But if they don't, then, then you will suffer judgment. They, they also teach that good deeds wipe out bad deeds. So if you want to get the scales to tip your way, you need to do more good deeds than bad deeds. Good works include uh, several things, praying regularly, regularly, almsgiving, fasting, and making a pilgrimage to Mecca. Again, what I want us to see when it comes to their salvation, they say you don't need a savior. You don't need a mediator between you and God because you can, by your works, save yourself. Now, when it comes to heaven and hell, they also have a heaven and hell. 
Um, if, you're, if, if you do gain Allah's favor by having done more good than evil, then you will receive heaven. And if not, you will receive the fiery hell. And their description of heaven is uh, it's a little bit different than ours. Uh, in, and I hope this will become clear by the end of the sermon. But they would say that there are gardens in paradise with rivers of pure water, of pure milk, and of pure honey. They say that there's rivers of sweet wine that you can drink uh, as much as you want because you won't get intoxicated by it. They teach that, that your family is there, that there is no sorrow, no ill, feeling, Ill feelings. They also teach that there is no work and that there is no labor. Now, I would say that you have to, the Bible does not teach that work and labor are bad. Actually, work is good. I believe that uh, the scripture, there's enough in scripture to show that we will be working in heaven. It will be a, 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 but it will be a time that is, we won't have the thorns and the thistles that we deal with in this life. But they say that there is no work and that there is no labor, only relaxation. It sounds like, to me, the American, um, when you retire, American retirement, no work, no labor, just relaxation. Everything you ever wanted, Allah will make it happen. Heaven is centered around your happiness and your desires. In other words, Allah exists to make you happy. The central figure in heaven is who? You. You are the central figure in heaven, according to the Muslims. Now, when it comes to, if you talk to a Muslim, they will probably tell you um, that they believe in Jesus. And that is because he is mentioned 25 times in their Quran. They, would, they say that he was a devout Muslim and he was one of the top six prophets that ever walked the face of the earth. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and then the top prophet was Muhammad, even though he's only, he's only mentioned in the Quran four times. But he is the top, the, uh, top prophet in the Muslim faith. When it comes to Jesus' birth, they would say he was born of a virgin, but that it was not the Holy Spirit, but probably uh, an angel that impregnated uh, Mary. In other words, Jesus is not the Son of God, is what they would teach. They would teach that he performed miracles, healed the sick, raised the dead. But then they would say he did not die. They say that Jesus did not die. And they also say that Jesus did not die on the cross. In, their, in the Quran, chapter 4, verse 157, this is what it says. But they killed him not nor crucified him, but the resemblance of Jesus was put over another man, and they killed that man. So basically what they're saying is that before Jesus was crucified, God, like Elijah, took him up into heaven so that he, he would not die, and that somebody else was made to look like Jesus. Many of the Muslims would say that it, it was Judas that died in his place, but that someone else died on the cross instead of Jesus. The, the last thing that I want us to see is that they say that Jesus is coming back, that he is coming back, there is a second coming, and when he comes back, he's going to slay the Antichrist, which is what our scriptures would teach also, 
But they say after he does that, he's going to just go back and be amongst his brothers and begin uh, to follow the teachings of Muhammad again. So clearly, I hope that it's very clear that, that uh, they are not worshiping the same Jesus that we worship. They deny his deity. They deny his sonship. They deny his sacrificial death. This is huge. They deny his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. And, doing, and, and, and in doing so, they deny his resurrection. So I hope it's clear to everyone that we are not worshiping the same God and that Allah is not, of Islam is not Yahweh of Christianity. Now, Going back to the, the main question that we're asking here this morning, is there hope for the future? I want you to be the judge when it comes to the worldviews that we've been looking at. The atheistic worldview says they hope there is a God. New spirituality says they hope they are God. What did I say for the first one? Okay, the atheistic worldview hopes there is no God, okay? Because I know someone was out there going, okay. New spirituality says they hope they are God, and Muslims hope they've been good enough to satisfy a God who is distant and unknowable. Would you say that these are hopes that you would, would want to put your hope in? I would say that these are hopes of un of uncertainty. But you know what? I don't want to stop there. I don't want to leave us there. I, want to, I actually want to proclaim what our hope is. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about where our hope is because we have a living hope. We have a living hope, and it's not in ourselves. We know, those of us who are the church, we know that we cannot pay for our sins. I know that if, if I get up into heaven, you know, it, it would be something like, it's, it's going to be whole, I can't even begin to do enough good works to outdo what I, my evil works. But even if I could, good works do not pay for evil. That has to be paid for by somebody. And, you know, we're, we're the, the, the one that is a living hope is the, is the same one that the Apostle John wrote about in 1 John when he said, you know, we, we saw him. We saw him with our eyes, and, and we touched him with our hands. It's the same hope of whom Peter said when he was standing before the Lord. He said, Lord, to whom, who else would we go to? Why? Because you have the words of eternal life. And, and let me remind us that this Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Jesus, he is our hope of certainty. Jesus is our hope of certainty. Why? Well, he gives us two promises that are found in the passage that Greg read earlier this morning in uh, John 14, 1 through 3. He gives us two major promises that I want us to look at. They are, unsh uh, they are to, so that we will have unshakable hope for the future. The first one is this, the promise of a place, if you're taking notes. Secondly, is the promise of a person the promise of a place, and the promise of a person. So I want us to, to look at this passage real quickly. Um, it's, it's important to remember that Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's told his disciples that he's leaving. They are grieving. They, uh, they need hope, and here's what he tells them in order to give them hope. He says, let not your hearts 
be troubled. Okay, you see that? They're, they're grieving. They need hope. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, believe in God the Father and believe in God the Son. Verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So that's, that's the first promise right there. You see that? That is the promise of a place. Then verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the promise of a person. The promise of a place, a, a literal place to inhabit, and the promise of a person. And you know, for the Christian, for the true disciple of Jesus, the promise of a place is not enough for us. It is not enough for the disciple of Christ. It is, it is not enough for me to have paradise without Jesus. Now, for the rest of the world, it is. The rest of the world wants to go to the place, but they don't want the person, the king, to be there ruling over them, right? So that's, that's what separates us from other religions. We want our king there. We want him to rule over us. For the Christian, heaven is a place and a person. In other words, the central figure in heaven is not you, it's not me. The central figure in heaven is Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. It's like going out to eat. I, I love going out to eat to nice places on one, on, on one condition, and that is that I go out with somebody, like my wife. I love going to, to nice places to eat and, and sitting there and enjoying the meal. But if I'm going by myself, I don't enjoy that. I need, it's not just the place, it's the person that goes in that place with me. But, you know, have you ever noticed, I want you to think about your own life, have you ever noticed that it, it always seems like we're waiting for something? You're probably waiting for something right now. Like, uh, you know, we're always waiting for something, like for Christmas, or for that package that got held up in the ice storm. You're waiting for a package, or you're waiting for some kind of life-changing event. But have you ever noticed that when it gets there, you're like, ah, that, that's, not, that's not exactly what I was waiting for. Um, there, we, we all long for something. There's something in us that, that longs for something. You know what that is? We're all longing for heaven. We are all longing for paradise. C.S. Lewis says, Heaven is that remote music we are born remembering. There's something instinctively in us that knows that we were meant for more, that knows that we were created for more, and there's something in us that wants to go back to the way it used to be, the way that it should be. We want to go back to a time when we walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. When work, our work was, was meaningful and fulfilling, it didn't have weeds and it didn't have thorns. We all want to go back to the time when relationships were, were not so difficult, when they were safe and they were authentic and they were free from conflict and misunderstanding. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You say something and you meant this, but they heard this or vice versa, the conflicts that are in relationships. 
We long for a world that is liberated from disease and death. We long for paradise. And here's our hope. Jesus says it's coming. That is our hope. Heaven is coming, Jesus says. And you know, in the book of Revelation, um, we get a sneak peek of what heaven's going to be like. The apostle John wrote this book, and it's important to understand that he didn't just write it just because he was bored and didn't have anything else to do. He actually was writing it to people who were experiencing great persecution, hardship, they were experiencing great oppression and, and injustice. They needed, you know what they needed? They needed hope. And so what does he write? What does he write to them about? He writes to them about heaven. He writes to them to tell them about their hope in heaven. And I'm going to read, uh, I want to look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. This is what he wrote to give hope. And I want you to see if you can find uh, the place where it talks about the promise of a place, and then the promise of a person in this passage right here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Did you see that? Did you see the promise, heaven coming down, the promise of a place, and then the promise of a person, God dwelling amongst his people? That is what makes heaven, heaven. And notice that it says that heaven came down, heaven, the city coming down. In other words, we're not going to be floating up in the sky on, uh, on clouds in a white robe playing harps. That's boring. That is not what heaven is going to be like. But you know, that that's what most people would picture heaven, wouldn't it be? According to the, to the scriptures, we're going to get new bodies. They're going to be spiritual bodies, but they're going to be new bodies where, where we walk. We talk, we eat. Jesus ate fish in his new body, in his resurrected body. It's not going to be boring. Heaven is going to come down and transform the earth. Tim Keller, I like what he says, that heaven is the atmosphere of the glory of God. And I love this part. He says that heals everything that it touches. Everything that heaven touches, it heals. And you know, heaven's already come down once at Jesus' first advent. And he gave us a a taste of what the place is going to be like because everything, everyone that Jesus touched, he brought life. And when we rebelled in the garden, everything just, just fell apart. 
about life. Everything did. We fell apart spiritually, mentally, psychologically, physically, relationally, socially. Everything fell apart. And Jesus is coming back to touch everything. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And it's, again, it's interesting to me that it says that there is a city, a city that came down. I want you to, one of the things that we don't do enough, I think, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, is we don't use our imaginations enough. Now, we have to be careful not to trust your imagination, but we do need to use them. Because John is using words that we can all relate to. Whether it's a city or like a city, that doesn't matter. We know it's going to be better, okay? So what you need to do is imagine the best city you could ever think of. Now, what's in a city? There is architecture there. There is food there. There is art in city. In the city. There, in this city, there is free parking. I don't like going down. I'm not talking about downtown, okay? Do not think about downtown. The city that, that uh, his people are going to be in. There's going to be fellowship there. There's going to be laughter and joy and singing and dancing. Why? Because the king is there. The king has descended. And everything he touches, he's going to bring it back to life. It will be paradise restored when Jesus comes back. Because when Jesus rules, there is healing and eternal life. And again, Jesus is the central figure in heaven. Jesus is our hope. And he says that nothing wicked will ever enter its gates. And that's why I think John writes about heaven. Because doesn't it produce a longing in you, for the thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is our hope, not just when heaven comes down, but when the king that we've all longed for descends and takes his throne and he makes all things new. And that's why we need to do what Colossians 3 says, to set our minds and our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Knowing that since our relationship with God is right, our relationship with God is right, that's what he did on this first coming, make us right with God by dying for us. Because our relationship with God is right, everything else is going to be made right when Jesus returns and heaven comes down. Amen? I want to close by just reading the last part of Revelation. And these are the words of Jesus. Chapter 22, you can just listen. There's no, they're not going to be on the screen. Just listen to the word of God. These are the words of Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 12, he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. He who testifies to these things says, 
Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.